This evening we come to the last of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. With none of the other six does our Lord speak so strongly. With none is his rebuke so sharp. But with none other, even those he commands, um, those he commends is his gracious, loving gospel rescue so sweetly offered. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. The Church of Laodicea. Revelation 3, beginning at 14. And to the angel in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may, be, so you may clothe yourself, <clears throat> and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. For uh, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So first, the problem in Laodicea. Jesus identifies himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler or the beginning of God's creation. All very solemn titles that prepare the way for the severity of this critique and the rebuke which our Lord is about to level at this particular church. And Jesus memorably describes the problem or the great trouble in the church of Laodicea in one very succinct and devastating phrase. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Now, what does that mean? That they are neither cold nor hot. It means um, that uh, the people of the Laodicean church were beset with a killing spiritual disease um, of half-heartedness, of half-hearted complacency or smug uh, self-satisfaction. 
Uh, they were not teaching apostasy. They had not been seduced into spiritual immorality. They were not caving in under the pressure of emperor worship or persecution. Not this church. But neither had they any zeal for Jesus or for the truth of the gospel. They were neither hot nor cold towards Christ and the gospel. Just lukewarm. They were not on fire for Christ or faith. They were worldly, they were materially prosperous, spiritually empty, distant, and disinterested. Now, the church of Laodicea might have understood this image of condemnation that our Lord particularly chooses for them. The healing waters in, from the nearby town of Hierapolis were said to have come from a hot spring. Uh, the waters of the neighboring city of Colossae were supplied from a nearby cold mountain spring. But the Laodicean water was piped in from a distance, which meant it was probably lukewarm. Now, for a guy who likes to put ice cubes in a glass in anything that I drink, especially water, lukewarm water is practically undrinkable. Now, you people may feel differently, but I've got to have ice. I want cold when I drink water. And, uh, but Jesus here, God declares himself nauseated by their tepid religion. He says, in fact, I will spit you. I will spew you out of my mouth. There, there, there's more hope, in other words. I think this is what he's saying. For a man who is icy in his indifference, uh, or even uh, actively opposed uh, to the gospel and red hot against it, than one who affects an attitude of incipient, disinterested boredom towards Christ and his gospel. That is deadly. Uh, if you've been to a church where everybody is just sort of disinterested, you know how deadly um, that can be. It, it's, certainly, um, it's certainly an insult to God and, and totally out of character for any saved man or woman. Uh, our Lord is not looking for religious fanatics, but, but he does uh, have a right to expect uh, from anyone who was so wonderfully and undeservedly saved for eternity uh, and, and delivered from judgment some sort of warm love and some spirited uh, interest in the gospel and in, and in him. Perhaps, writes the British churchman and commentator John Stott, who passed away a number of years ago, uh, perhaps none of the seven letters in Revelation is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. Um, the personal faith um, of the religiously lukewarm of which uh, who, who um, never it, it comes across I think with all of the enthusiasm of a, of a flabby handshake um, I think he's speaking about nominalism I think our Lord is speaking about in name only Christians who have, in my opinion, become so inoculated with religion that they can't catch the real thing. All right? They've been inoculated. You knock on the door. 
and say, I, I wonder if I could talk to you about the Lord. They say, oh, I've already got my own religion, thank you. You know, I go to Mass every Sunday. Or, or it might be something else. You know, it might be, well, you know, I'm, my mom was best. My, my uncle was a priest, you know, or, or you know, I, I, you've all heard these things. And it's sort of as if that somehow is, is enough for them. Um, and they don't really want to hear about um, something interesting, something that's really important. Uh, lukewarm religion is a religion that never gets past the church doors as well. It, it never convicts anyone to the point that they actually mourn or, or, or deeply regret their sin. It, it never brings anyone to a state of repentance. Lukewarm religion is never sorry for offending God. It may be sorry for offending somebody else, but certainly not God. Uh, lukewarm religion has never troubled over the fact that it never had enough love of God or fear of God to bother uh, with uh, sharing the gospel with a neighbor or a teenager or a small child. Lukewarm religion is the religion of, of Simon the Pharisee, described in Luke 7. You know, the one who, who invited Jesus for dinner <clears throat> and... Um, and then there was this uh, spectacle on the side with the woman who came to weep at his feet. And, and um, you know, S- Simon had, had no love for Christ because he, had, he was so self-satisfied with himself. And he saw no need for Jesus. It never saw, a lukewarm religion is, is smug and self-satisfied and self-righteous. It, it never causes anyone to reach the place where they, they might want to die to themselves and die to their own reputation and their own interests and, and be filled instead with the interests and, and the agenda of Christ. That never happens with lukewarm religion. Lukewarm religion is flaccid, but it's comfortable. It's, it doesn't rock the boat, not yours or anybody else's. Lukewarm religion uh, says to itself, everything is just fine the way it is without any fuss. And our church on Saturday night or Sunday morning is quite enough. Thank you. That's lukewarm religion. But the Lord of the church says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, how can this happen? How, do, how does a Christian become lukewarm? What happened in Laodicea? <clears throat> Laodicea was a very prosperous city. It was a great commercial and financial center. It had a famous school of medicine, interestingly renowned, renowned for its um, a remedy for weak and diseased eyes. Um, it was a center of a thriving garment industry, uh, known for soft black wool. Um, it, it, it was so self-sufficient, the city of Laodicea, that uh, it declined financial assistance from Rome when devastated by an earthquake in the first century A.D. And it appears that that general attitude had affected even the church. And, and we shouldn't be surprised because sometimes, not infrequently, um, material wealth uh, and self-sufficiency uh, translates into spiritual, the spiritual realm and makes us spiritually proud and complacent and and self-sufficient. They say themselves, the folk of Laodicea, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. Jesus is quoting their own words, but continues 
in verse 17, Jesus says, You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's quite a list. (laughs) They think everything's fine between them and God, but the Lord says, No, it's not fine. It's not fine at all. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In light of Jesus' counsel, later on in verse 18, the operative words are the last three. Blind, poor, and naked. Blind because they could not see or even acknowledge the truth of their dangerous situation. They had no idea there was any problem at all. They must have been shocked to hear this. The church of Laodicea was in a very precarious situation, as we'll see in a moment, uh, when we look at the rest of Jesus' words. But they were blind to it all. Uh, In their view, everything was just hunky-dory and smooth and fine. A poor, you're poor, says the Lord. Uh, I don't care about your bank account or your fine ritual or the size or splendor of your church. You're spiritually bankrupt. Your debtor's about to be liquidated. You're underwater, friends. And naked, and not literally, of course, on the contrary, the Laodiceans were likely to have been quite well-dressed, but Jesus, speaking figuratively again, says they're spiritually uh, naked. And they should have been ashamed to stand uh, before God. Uh, They're a disgrace and they needed uh, the clothing of Christ, but they wouldn't see it. Wow. So here's the Lord's judgment on this church. A congregation neither conscientiously nor thoughtfully opposed to Christ but not deeply committed to Christ. A church with a very nominal faith, very superficial, skin-deep, uncommitted, flabby. Or to take the figure of speech differently, their personal faith and witness to the world was uh, neither refreshingly cold, nor did they offer anyone the comfort and healing properties associated with heat. And Jesus tells them that he's about to vomit them from his mouth, that, that he will be rid of them, and will have nothing further to do with them. He will spew them out of his mouth and take away their candlestick and remove their church. But now we come to the counsel of our Lord in verses 18 and 19. And we see um, in looking at this that we mustn't miss um, the, the tenderness and the mercy and the amazing grace of God to these people. His rebuke is so sharp, but then he goes on immediately uh, on to tenderly and lovingly invite and command uh, their repentance. Um, it, it always amazed me that when you read the Bible, immediately after the fall in, in the third chapter of Genesis, there's the promise, isn't there? The Ur promise, the the, the Proto-Evangelion, you know, where God says that there's going to be a woman, the seed of a woman. Right there, then. And so here also. Um, and, and his rebuke is certainly driven by his love for them, his concern for them, his, his, his covenant commitment to them. I think it's so important for us to understand that because this is how God ever deals with his people, including ah, you and I, those whom he loves, and especially when he sees us drifting away and falling away from him. Uh, He pursues and corrects and disciplines us. Uh, He reveals his motive 
and course for them clearly in verse 19. Um, if there's no zeal for Jesus in their lives, then they need to be zealous in their repentance. Those I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Um, and with those words comes then this beautiful offer that has captured people's attention for centuries. And people love to argue about this, by the way, that it's not supposed to be for Christians or it's, it's only for Christians. Um, but you know the one I'm talking about. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Which is a most gracious uh, invitation to act out in faith and open uh, the door of Christ in our hearts. These people, perhaps they weren't even believers. Perhaps they were in some very elemental a a manner, but they're invited by our Lord to come in to him and, and, and to open to him and, and to receive his gracious invitation to dine with them and be with them. And, and uh, it's an amazing thing. Um, uh, it, it's always been attractive to people, hasn't it? And, and brothers and sisters, how can, how can, you know, how can anyone's heart uh, be so complacent and so hard and so indifferent and so, uh, and so lukewarm that it cannot be melted by the love of Christ, cannot be melted by gracious personal offers like this one in, uh, in Revelation uh, 3.21. Uh, the one who prayed for his enemies, the one who healed them and forgave them and gave them excuses even as they were torturing them on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Wow. What a loving Savior. Well, Jesus tells us exactly what we must do. He tells us what repentance and faith from uh, our, looks like from our incipient, shallow faith and tells us how to respond. We must first buy from him gold, not because, uh, because we're rich, but because we're poor. Um, not mineral gold, not the mineral gold of this age, which men dig out of the earth and fight and war over, and which so easily cools and corrupts our religion and then perishes with us in the grave. And not the empty gold of good opinion and praises of men which we also crave and attend to. Not the fool's gold of our own corrupt good works uh, or merits by which none will be saved. But rather, Jesus' gold, uh, which he paid for himself. He says, buy from me. That's not to be taken to mean it in some sort of way that we have to pay for it. He's paid for it himself. We know that. And it's, it's the currency by which alone the incalculable debt of sin can be paid, providing for us complete forgiveness of sins now and forever. And we must take up those white garments that our Lord offers, uh, because we're not clothed in his sight, but we are indeed naked. And, and what are these garments that Jesus offers when he says, take up white garments to the, to the church? Well, of course... They're the garments of Christ's own righteousness, his own moral perfection uh, by which we may be uh, clothed or covered with our shameful nakedness. 
Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come I thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Like, doesn't that say it? That's what Jesus means when he offers these white garments. He's offering the saving merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is credited to us in faith. In the parable of the wedding banquet, the Matthew 22 uh, parable, uh, Jesus tells us, and you remember this, about a great king who, who throws a lavish wedding uh, feast for his son and invites many guests. And he tells us uh, in this parable about a man who crashes the party uh, wearing his own dirty rags and not the right robes provided uh, by the king. And when he's discovered, you remember he's thrown out, he's kicked out of the out of the feasting and he's thrown out into outer darkness. Now, you understand that, don't you? This man thinks that he's fit uh, to be there at the great wedding of the king's son in his own righteousness. But, but only when we're covered uh, with uh, the robes of the righteousness of Christ are we acceptable to God. The third thing he offers that we must get Gold, white garments, and then ISAV to put on blind eyes that do not see, so that we can see the truth and 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 comprehend it when we read it in the Word, um, and the one who is the truth and follow him in his word and his way and not our own. We all need every man needs to be regenerated so as to recognize his need for a lively, active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing new here, is there? This is what God has been offering his people uh, through the ages. Isaiah 55, Come unto me, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. The Lord Jesus reveals himself to us in this text. As holding out his hands to proud, self-satisfied, self-sufficient, self-deserved, hell-bound fools. Pleading. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So I say, do not add this sin to the rest that you've turned away of the gracious invitation of the Lord God, whom the Father gave at great expense as his best and final offer. Well, if all that were not enough, Finally, see what he promises. Uh, see what he offers in addition to this new life. Gold garments and eyes that see the truth. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now we know where Jesus is. 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, which is the highest place of honor, the place of greatest power, the place of greatest glory, such as we can never even imagine. No earthly throne, no earthly position of honor or power uh, that, that could ever attain, that we could ever attain on this earth, could approach uh, what it must be to sit on the throne of God with Jesus in heaven. How is that even possible that he can offer that? Uh, how can we, uh, how can all of God's elect sit with Jesus in glory and honor and power and authority on the throne? I have no idea. Um, I, I only have what you have, which is the word of God and the specific promise of Christ in this text, which is referenced in a number of other places as well. But we know how he got there, don't we? And that's so important. Look at 21 again. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus is the conquering king. He overcame sin and death and all the temptations of this life and was raised triumphant at the right hand of the father in heaven. Uh, for us and for his own glory he did this. So that by his powerful grace, you and I can also live uh, active, vibrant, obedient Christian lives. It's all grace, brothers and sisters. And we can reject a relationship of lukewarm self-sufficiency. And we can reject dull spiritual lives of, of dead complacency. And we must do this by his grace. It's through his conquest that we can live victoriously in our lives. Because Jesus has gone before us precisely because he is the conqueror, we have his blessings and his spirit and his promises, which he purchased for us to run our race as well to the end. And to sit with him one day, completed and content in every way in the Lord at the end, he who has an ear, let him hear what the church says, or the Spirit says to the churches. Lord God, thank you again for um, another church that we look at. And Lord, um, a hard, a hard look. This uh, it is, it is challenging to wonder if we're more complacent than we ought to be. Father, we pray that you would enliven us, that your spirit would bless us, that you would give us a zeal for you and a love for you as we contemplate your grace and your love for us, that flowing out of all of that, we might find an easy way to stand interested and enlightened and excited to share with others uh, what you have so graciously given us. Bless your church, we pray. Even um, faith, all of our churches, uh, we pray in Jesus' name.